Live by Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now. This is my This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. It's been nearly a month since the Supreme Court declared the way for Donald Trump's accounting firm, Mazers, to hand over years of the former president's tax returns and related financial documents to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And boy, have they been busy. This is a new world for citizen Trump. He no longer has the formal immunities that he benefited from as President Donald Trump. He also no longer has the legal firepower of the federal government, which in most cases uses these full-time expert, powerful lawyers across the DOJ and other agencies to defend just about anything the president does. Laser focused on Trump and those inside his inner circle, Vance has brought in a forensic team to comb through millions of documents and has hired a bulldog prosecutor who is determined to cut through Trump's bullshit and bring him to justice. Now, I don't want to undermine an ongoing investigation by revealing anything out of school. But what I can say, after going downtown to testify several times and deciphering some incredibly shady documents, the case side Vance's building is breathtaking in scope and rock fucking solid. I think this is really an indication that the speed and the momentum of this train is really picking up. We have more subpoenas, we have more witness interviews. Trump is gonna be indicted very soon for a host of crimes going back decades that will reveal how the Trump organization itself was little more than a front for years of financial trickery, lying, fraud, and asset manipulation. Uh, John Dean said that he was on the witness side of the equation. And when he hears about somebody meeting with prosecutors so many times, it's an indication that they're probably moving toward indictment and trial. Now, with the investigation coming into focus, led by former Gambino crime family prosecutor Mark Pomerantz, the DA's office is taking a page from its mob-busting past by looking to flip Trump's longtime loyal financial soldier and CFO, Alan H. Weisselberg. Trump's dad lends him a ton of money as a young man and says, with the money comes my money guy, Weisselberg. And Weisselberg has stayed uh, right next to Donald Trump as the keeper of the secrets. And this is a key. Weisselberg knows where the money went, where it came from, how it was accounted for, whether things were lied about. Because when you lie to the government, it can be a crime. His name is literally on the checks. He also was not on that list of people that Trump pardoned on his way out of office. The increased focus on Trump's financial eyes and ears could step up pressure on him to cooperate with the investigation if the prosecutors unearth evidence of wrongdoing on his part. He has served as the Trump Organization's financial gatekeeper for more than four decades and could be a vital source of information for the government about the inner workings of the company. In recent weeks, the prosecutors have been interviewing witnesses who know Mr. Weisselberg and have asked at least one witness about Mr. Weisselberg's sons, Barry and Jack Weisselberg, according to reports. Barry Weisselberg has been the property manager of Trump Woman Rink in Central Park, 
which was a massive cash cow for the organization until the city canceled its contract with the Trump organization in the wake of January 6 riots. The Manhattan District Attorney is probing the extent of Alan Weisselberg's loyalty to Donald Trump and scrutinizing a Trump-owned apartment once occupied by Weisselberg's son, according to people familiar with the investigation. The questioning is now led by a former mob prosecutor, and one person familiar with the investigation said it's aimed at flipping Weisselberg, attempting to turn one of Trump's longest-serving and most important aides into a witness against him. Finally, Alan's other son, Jack, works at Ladder Capital, one of Mr. Trump's biggest lenders. And investigators have been asking witnesses about loans made to the Trump Organization by the financial operation. As part of that process, lenders typically ask about the financial health of the buildings, including the occupancy level and the total rent paid by tenants. Ladder Capital has loaned the Trump Organization more than $270 million related to four buildings in Manhattan. And this, Brian, is exactly how criminal investigations are built. It is like TV, Law and Order, or something like that. It is flipping people, taking people, squeezing the daughter, squeezing the daughter-in-law, squeezing the former daughter-in-law, squeezing the son, taking all of those folks, and then getting Weisselberg ultimately to say, you know, the price of your loyalty to Donald Trump is your children possibly going to jail. All of this is an attempt to shake the tree and see what falls out. They're going to go through those boys' tax returns with a fine tooth comb and literally string them up by the balls for every infraction that they can find. And if there is real malfeasance, and there likely has been over the years, prosecutors will squeeze them to cooperate. Their lives are over for the indefinite future. While they have thus far remained loyal, only time will tell how well they do with Pomerantz and the Manhattan DA's office looking up their ass with a flashlight. Very, very high that there's legal jeopardy for Donald Trump. So, you know, Alan Weisselberg was the CFO, the chief financial officer. He's been incredibly loyal, as you were just saying, to Donald Trump for many decades. But loyalty has a price, you know, particularly when family and children are being squeezed, as they are here. Now, according to NBC News, Investigators have begun speaking to Barry Weisselberg's ex-wife, Jennifer, who has a story to tell of her own. Among the avenues of inquiry is a Central Park apartment where Jennifer said she and her former husband lived, rent-free, for several years. She said Trump offered the apartment as a wedding gift around the time the pair got married in 2004. The daughter-in-law has even said that she thinks that she got that apartment to buy her loyalty to him in the way that the mafia operates and things like that. The property was, in fact, a corporate apartment owned by the Trump Organization, an arrangement that could have legal implications if it was not properly accounted for. Jennifer Weisselberg said they only paid for utilities, about $400 a month. The apartment was sold in 2014 for $2.85 million, according to New York City housing records. The signature on the deed, surprisingly, is Donald J. Trump. Weisselberg told NBC she was completely in the dark over the arrangement, but now sees it as part of what she described as the Trump Organization's strategy of ensuring the loyalty of its employees. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. They control people by compensating you with homes and things, Weisselberg said. It's not easy to walk away when they provide your home. She went on to describe a twisted, almost Dickensian dynamic between the Weisselbergs and Trumps. Allen, the family patriarch, literally put himself and his children into indentured servitude for the Donald. 
Trump became the center of their universe and they defined themselves based on their relationship to him. Everything revolved around serving Donald Trump, saving him money, working nonstop for him. Alan would not take an hour or day off if Donald was in the office because I think he felt like he had to be there all the time, but also they are a team. He discusses everything. His office is right next door. He discusses everything with him, his opinion, and um, Donald trusts him to continue the legacy the way his father set things up. That was their life. Now it's their turn to face the investigators. I'll never forget how Alan turned on me during the Stormy Daniels hush money investigation. The SDNY gave him immunity to testify against me, despite the fact that it was he and Trump who cooked up the fucking deal in the first place. Well, fuck it. Karma's the goddamn boomerang, and I can't wait for it to hit Alan and his near-to-do-well idiot sons in the fucking head on the way down. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Let me add that Alan knows everything. And if they can get him to flip, Trump is even more fucked than he already is at the moment. Alan was behind every shady deal, manipulation, and fucking untruth. It all flowed from him. Well, now it's all going to flow back. So have fun in Otisville, buddy. Now, let's go down to Cuomo Town. Hey. How you doing? There must be something in New York City and New Jersey water that creates this toxic miasma of scandal. Ever since New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy left office in his own 2004 sex scandal, governors from each state have traded places in an ever-escalating war of moral and political offense. This morning, Andrew Cuomo stands alone, increasingly a political pariah in New York and the nation. After McGreevy came, Spitzer, who was so loathed himself that his downfall was faster than a speeding bullet. Then came David Patterson, who had his own swinger gate. Chris Christie nearly resigned, but became damaged goods after his own Bridgegate scandal. Do you think Governor Andrew Cuomo should resign? I think the investigation is underway and we should see what it's And now comes Cuomo, who ascended to power on the backs of Spitzer and Patterson and seems to have burned every bridge possible on his way up. His way down, it seems, will be precipitous as both Democrats and Republicans call for his resignation. This morning, almost all of the state's Democratic Congress people are calling on Cuomo to go, along with its two U.S. senators, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand. Governor Cuomo has lost the confidence of his governing partners. The three-term governor is facing a trifecta of scandals. Numerous women, including two former staffers, have now claimed he sexually harassed them. Others in the political world have accused Cuomo of intimidation tactics, and he is also under investigation for failing to report COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. Today's New York Times says its investigation showed Cuomo's office is afflicted with a culture still rooted in the Mad Men era, including an expectation that younger female staffers wear makeup, dresses, and heels because it was rumored that was what the governor liked. In an ABC News interview on Tuesday, even President Biden waded into the murky Cuomo swamp when asked about the allegations. The president said Cuomo should resign 
and would probably end up being prosecuted if the various sexual misconduct allegations are substantiated. A woman should be presumed to telling the truth and should not be scapegoated and become victimized by her coming forward, number one. But there should be an investigation to determine whether what she says is true. As Biden was grilled about the governor, new details were emerging about the Cuomo team's desperate campaign to defend him against former top aide Lindsey Boylan who initially accused the governor on Twitter and later gave a fuller account with allegations that he invited her to play strip poker and planted an unwanted kiss on her lips. I never harassed anyone. I never abused anyone. I never assaulted anyone. Now, and I never would, right? I can't fucking imagine what it must have been like to work for this guy and be subject to his petty power games and weird sexual come-ons. Well... I can, actually. It must have been quite similar to working for fucking Donald Trump. But the difference between the two men was that Cuomo made himself out to be this crusading, progressive figure. But in the end, he was just another fucking asshole who couldn't keep his pecker in his pants and his hands off the interns. Now that the knives are out, it seems everybody wants to take a turn giving this guy what he deserves. for the main event. In 1983, just before winning a third term as Louisiana's governor, Edwin Edwards famously said the only way he could lose the race was, and I quote, if I'm caught in bed with either a dead girl or a live boy. Edwards was a famously corrupt governor from a state that had long rewarded corruption. That he would end up serving 10 years in prison was something else entirely. What voters want and reward is much different than what is acceptable by law. This tracks with Donald Trump's remarks about being so beloved by his MAGA base that he could shoot someone in the face on Fifth Avenue and still get elected. The sentiment, though, only carries one so far. Popularity and blunt force charisma may take you all the way to the governor's mansion or even the presidency, but it does not protect you on the way down. What happens to Andrew Cuomo is still anybody's guess. But if you were to follow the past narrative of New York and New Jersey's last four governors, he's absolutely screwed. Donald Trump is another matter entirely and his downfall less assured. Justice rests on the ability of the Manhattan DA to make the case that Trump engaged in a pattern of criminality going back decades. I think it will happen and believe indictments will soon be on their way. But until then... All we can do is read the tea leaves. Helping me divine which way the wind blows this week is Politico Sam Stein. A longtime force of nature in Washington journalism, Stein has his finger on the pulse of democratic politics and is well-schooled in the smash-mouth, winner-takes-all mood that has enveloped the Capitol since Trump took office. He is a regular MSNBC contributor and has over the years been a tough interrogator of mine as well. Today we turn the tables and Sam graciously lent us his experience on a host of topics from Cuomo's stunning downfall to the GOP's current obsession with cancel culture. It made for a fascinating hour. So let's listen now to that conversation. With the passage of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan, millions of Americans will finally get some measure of help from the federal government. 
It's also the first major legislative victory of the Biden administration. What comes next, though, is the salesmanship of the bill to the American people. What do you think is at stake here for the Biden administration as they seek to position this bill for 2022? And are the lessons of what happened to the Obama administration in the wake of the passage of the Affordable Care Act and financial bailout still fresh in Biden's mind? Uh, I think you asked the right question. You know, it's one thing to pass a bill. Uh, it's another to make sure that the public knows what's in the bill and how they benefit from it. And one of the more acute lessons that I believe the Biden people learned and Democrats in general learned from the Obama years is that um, these types of legislation don't necessarily sell themselves. You know, the stimulus bill in 2009 was not as big as this one, but it was historic. Uh, It sent a lot of money out to people. Um, It funded a lot of shovel ready projects. And one of the more interesting reporting things that I did back then was I used to call up people who got stimulus money in different towns. And you knew this because there was a database tracking the money. So you could figure out who got money and how much. And I would call them up and I'd say, tell me, you know, John Smith, how the stimulus affected your life. And almost to a person, the answer that I would get from these people was, I didn't get stimulus money. I don't know what you're talking about. They just didn't know that the money they got from the government was because of this bill that Obama had passed. And so what that said to me was that um, people are not as closely attuned to the news cycle as you you and I might be, uh, and they don't follow the particularities of it. But also, if you pass a bill, you got to make sure people know that it is because of you. You got to make sure people know where the money came from. And so, you know, what we see now is Biden, uh, the first lady, the vice president, uh, the second gentleman, uh, top officials and Democrats are all going out across the country to make sure that there's news coverage of the proponents, uh, sorry, the provisions of the bill, uh, that people understand that, you know, checks are in the mail, schools are going to open. I don't know if it's going to be successful uh, ultimately, but right now the bill is incredibly popular. And I think the more people feel like society is reopening because of the bill, the more credit they'll get for it. Well, let's not forget, Trump actually knew this. It's one of the few things he actually was told and he knew that you must ensure that the public knows, Donald, that you're the one that this, I'm referring to the first go around of the stimulus package. Do you remember what he did in order to ensure that every single person? Absolutely. Right. (laughs) I mean, if people and what he really wanted, in all fairness, was for people to make photocopies and hang it up on your refrigerator, hang it up inside of a, you know, of a picture frame, do whatever, because it had his name on it. And that would have been the ongoing continuous reminder to the American public of what Donald the Great had done for them. Right. By putting forth this bipartisan, you know, let a uh, bill in order to put money in the pockets of people during a worldwide pandemic. And what's funny is that, um, you know, Obama had this debate too, if I'm remembering correctly, about whether they put his name on the checks. And certainly the Biden people have discussed it too. And there is a school inside of academia and among economists and say, don't do it 
precisely because people might save the checks. <laughs> you, want, you want people to spend the money or, you know, get, they, you want to get the economy going. They, the, the last thing you want is someone just hanging on to a check because it's got the presidential signature on it. Sure, but you do understand that nobody was going to hang on to the check. What you do is you put it in your in your family <laughs> yeah, yeah, in your, your family copier, which is almost everybody has a color copier, fair right? Enough. So uh, you know you put it on there and then you just take it and you photocopy it. But Sam, in your most recent piece for Politico. You write about how the, and in quote, the age of Bernie is upon us. That Joe Manchin may have played a crucial role in the bill's passage as he sits at the ideological center of the party. But that is what Bernie, whose imprints on the bill had the greatest impact. Can you unpack this for my listener? Yeah. So- I should say listeners, <laughs> as now that we have more than 5 million, right, listener, what's wrong with me today? <laughs> I was going to say, is it just, you know, what is it, Donald, it's just you and me, one? nobody listens. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it was sort of a fascinating debate that we just went through. Um, traditionally, as Democrats operate through these things, what you see happen is the moderates of the party kind of dictate what can be done or what should be done. And the progressives in the party sit there usually swallow the final package and try to add to it through amendments. In this case, it was kind of the opposite. Essentially, what happened was uh, the progressives in the party said, we want to go big. We want to start out at this end of the spectrum. And we'll let the Joe Manchins of the world try to compromise us down. So when what you ended up with was a $1.9 trillion bill, which in itself is historically large, with $1,400 direct payments, which was a absolute demand of Bernie Sanders. You also had huge investments in the welfare system in this bill. We're talking about a massive child credit uh, that was a prize of the liberal wing of the party. You have $86 billion for uh, multi-employer pension bailouts, which is a huge proponent, uh, a huge provision that labor wanted. Um, And you had this sort of large-scale belief that it didn't matter if Republicans voted for this thing. What mattered was that it was politically popular. And I know it seems obvious as a, as a philosophy, but forever the, 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 the sort of guideposts for Democrat was bills that have bipartisan popularity are the ones that stand the test of time. In this case, Biden was like, no, let's go with something that's politically popular. These are all things that Bernie Sanders has been pushing the party to embrace you know, for decades. And Bernie's an interesting case study in how politics have changed in this country. You know, 10 years ago, the guy was considered kind of an outcast, um, someone who didn't really move the legislative agenda very far, who was more content to push causes that were going nowhere. And then he captivated a huge swath of the country. I don't want to say just Democrats, because I think he has fans uh, across the ideological spectrum. Obviously, um, he didn't win the nomination, but he set the tone of the debate uh, for what was permissible within the Democratic Party. He moved the Overton window about what they should be doing and how they should be acting, and for better or worse, right? And I think what we've seen in the first four weeks of the of the Biden administration is he's really put his imprint on this agenda. Biden could have gone in one of two directions here. There was a $900 billion bipartisan proposal for COVID relief that was presented to him 
in December. It had five Democrats, four Republicans on board. It was the framework of a bill that would have potentially gotten 60 votes. He could have chosen that route. And he said, at Bernie's encouragement, no, I'm going to go big and I'll go, if need be, with only Democratic votes. And he ended up getting a a historic package into place. Was it everything Bernie wanted? No. They didn't get the minimum wage hike in there. But it's hard to argue otherwise that uh, Bernie did not have the most impact of any senator on this bill. And it really does say a lot about the, where the Democratic Party is these days. You know, and let's also not forget that a big portion of Bernie Sanders' um, popularity and support are coming from people under the age of 30, right. which I find to be fascinating because had Bernie Sanders been 20 some odd years younger, there's a better than likely chance that he probably would be president because that would be the voting block, the big voting block in 10, 15, 20 years from now. And it's, you know, everything in life they say is timing. But you talked about bipartisan bills. And one that, of course, affects me and affects me a lot is the prison reform bills that have been put forth. Now, something that I am really, truly hoping that Joe Biden and his team will take the mantle on because Trump just, I mean, he just shit the goose on this one, right? And I mean, in all fairness, it's like he puts Bill Barr into it. They they create the First Step Act. And I'm right now in litigation against the government. I filed a habeas corpus action two, um, four months ago. It took two months for the judge to get appointed. Uh, it's Judge Kotal, uh, here, a respected, you know, federal court judge here in New York. He gave the government two months, 60 days in order to put forth a reply, which of course they did on the 60th day with two hours left at 10.05 PM, right? And they really run the clock. And what bothers me the most about their running of the clock on people, myself included, is simply the fact that there's nothing in their reply that is any different than the replies that they have already lost twice. One by my former attorney, Donya Perry, who I've called up and I may end up taking her to finish the case, you know, for me because I'm pro se on it. And this one just doesn't affect me. It affects tens of thousands of eligible federal inmates and yeah. maybe even more. And what I think it'll also do is help to stimulate this lack of empathy for, you know, for inmates in order to be returned to their family and to their communities because the recidivism rate is so low. One of the arguments that they had for me in terms of denying me my earned time credit, and this is the truth is the fact that I am of the absolute lowest recidivism rate possible. The absolute lowest. Therefore, no courses or work conduct that I did while I was in Otisville could reduce it any more, so therefore I should be entitled to nothing. Well, first and foremost, that's not what the First Step Act says. It's made up, and it's just stupid. And I'm certain that the court will once again find it. But the beauty, because it's me, and because of my name recognition... And the way that the media wants to constantly report on me, I believe that this will help many eligible federal inmates. And there are 248,000 federal inmates in the system. We really do need somebody to turn around and say, that's really not who this country, what we're not supposed to be, which is just a country of mass incarceration over and over and over again. They've made it into a business. And that's not what incarceration, incarceration sucks. 
I'm t- it does it doesn't just hurt the person who's incarcerated, right? right? It it hurts us while we're there, right. but it wrecks your family. It of destroys course. relationships with wives, with children, with parents, with friends, with your community. And for some of this stuff, no other country, no other country incarcerates people like we do here. But I want to say this to you. I follow Howard Feynman on Twitter, and I found his tweet from March 11th particularly interesting. And I quote, it's entirely possible that in terms of substantive legislation, Joe Biden will surpass Barack Obama. Some even suggest that Biden's already done so and that in his old school way, he'll do more than the previous two Democratic presidents to end the now 40 year long Reagan era. Obviously, it's way too early in Biden's tenure to make such a statement. Right. But. What do you take from Feynman's larger point here? So it's, there's a lot to unpack here. You know, let's start with Trump, right? Do we really have to say him? <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> we don't have to. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> you, go, you, you go ahead. No, you knock yourself out. Not to out. bring up old wounds. Um, but, you know, you, you would know. I mean, I feel like you could comment on this better than I can. But I do think it's unobjectionable to say, like, with Trump, there was the potential to have this kind of to bar, pardon the cliche, a Nixon goes to China type moment on, on this stuff. I mean, what I mean by that is that Trump had cast himself for decades, not just his presidential run, for decades as a tough on crime guy. I mean, we go back to Central Park Five, where he was way wrong, obviously. Um, and he had always cast himself as a guy who wanted to just you know, a, Ru- a Rudy Giuliani prototype, basically. And so when he got into office, and of course he's a Republican, he had the capacity to convince other Republicans to adopt a agenda that had more traditionally been, been associated with liberals, which was, let's get away from the era of mass incarceration, of tough punishments for non-lethal crimes. Let's reconsider sentencing laws. Let's try to uh, bring our criminal justice system into the 21st century. And that was, in essence, the idea of the First Step Act. I mean, it's oversimplifying it, obviously, but, you know, working with Van Jones, trying to work with some of the CBC members, figuring out how to get nonviolent criminals uh, who were in abhorrently long sentences out of prison. But the execution was always behind the message. And if you look at the actual record that he has on issues of pardons and commutations, it was abysmal. Uh, There was something something around 14,000 or so unacted upon commutation requests by the end of his time in office. He commuted uh, and pardoned fairly famous people, uh, some interesting cases, uh, political cases. But, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the vast majority of people waiting for sentence reductions or commutations, he did not act. My question is, has the window closed? Because are Republicans now going to say, you know what, this is more of a political opportunity. We don't want to bend here. Trump could have brought them along. Will Joe Biden be able to do it? I don't know the answer to that. I think where Howard Feynman is getting at is Joe Biden has somewhat, not a similar record to Trump, but he obviously cast votes uh, that have, in the modern age, aged pretty poorly. The 94 crime bill, for instance, tougher sentencing laws, 
uh, things like that, where he was one of those old school Democrats that felt like in response to Ronald Reagan, he needed to seem really tough on crime. His mindset's changed, his approach approach has changed. And already early on in his administration, he's taking some executive actions to try to address that, including, to your point, Michael, getting private prisons out of the game, you know, making this so it's not a profit enterprise. But, you know, a lot of this really does need to be expedited, one. Uh, So, you know, talking about uh, the Bureau of Pardons and whether you want to take that out of the Justice Department and try to get through these cases a little bit faster. But the other thing is, you know, through legislation. And can you get Congress to do the types of overhauls on sentencing reform and the like that really would make a substantial impact? Um, A lot can be done through executive action. I expect them to do that. Um, But I would be curious to see. I think the big question is, will the Republican voices who supported Trump when he was ostensibly for this type of reform, will they be there again when Biden is, and I just don't know yet. Well, I can turn around and tell you emphatically that the answer would be no, and any chance that they can shit on Biden and everybody that's affiliated to him and anything that he tries, I think it's very difficult to get bipartisan um, you know, uh, bills passed yeah. simply because they don't want to side, they're afraid for their own jobs, and they're really not helping either themselves or this country. But you made a very interesting point that about execution with Trump. Um, and the reason why there's no execution is because Donald Trump never had a plan. That's the whole thing. What he did is he took something which yeah. is a popularist statement. We need to get we need to completely overhaul our broken prison reform system. Our judicial system is broken as it relates to black and brown people. And so I'm going to reach out to Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, not because that they have a background in prison reform. Listen, and I give Kim and Kanye all the credit in the world for being able to bring this issue to the attention of the American people, which it is desperately needed. But he didn't go to Kim and Kanye and bring them to the White House for the purpose of actual prison reform. He did it because she has more Twitter followers and more (laughs) Instagram followers and more Facebook followers than he does. And his feeling was, I can charm these people and therefore I can charm the black and brown voter to vote for me, something that he was unable to do when he first stood up in 2018 with the first step act and made the statement that he's doing more for black and brown people in the prison reform than any president since Abraham Lincoln. It's just simply bullshit and it's a lie, right? But that's what Trump is. It was a marketing ploy using the fame and notoriety of Kim and Kanye for the sole purpose of benefiting himself. That's just who he is. Now, if Trump had half a brain, And I mean it, if he had half a brain, things that we had talked about when he was president-elect and even before that was not things like a Muslim ban or a travel ban, as they like to politically call it. But in fact, it really was a ban on Muslims coming into America because he's a xenophobe. One of the things I brought up to his attention, and it was based off of his own statements, was an infrastructure bill. 
Every single time we would land the plane, he would complain. Every time we'd hit a pothole in the limo as we're driving around, he would complain and make statements like, you know, New York is becoming like Iraq. The roads are all blown up, right? And so on. It's disgusting. And so when we talked about the infrastructure bill, had he only just done that, he would have easily won a reelection. And remember what he did. This clown went running off to the Arab Emirates. And he alleged that he came back with $250 billion of Middle Eastern investment money into the United States. He did the same with China and then with Japan. But ultimately, he ended up fighting with Xi Jinping and he fought with, you know, with the, uh, with Qatar and, uh, and other Arab Emirate states other than, of course, Mohammed bin Salman. And they all decided, yeah, I'm not going to invest money in the United States now, right? This makes absolutely no sense at all. Instead, every single American would have had a job and our infrastructure, which is crumbling and it's in dire need. And I hear Biden is now talking infrastructure as well. It's desperately needed. And, you know, but we had to invest instead in American lives versus concrete, but we will get there. You know, with when we finally have an adult like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House, I truly believe that anything can be done. But it would be nice if it would be bipartisan. It would make all of our lives, it would make their lives easier. But they just don't do that. Now, I want to also go to something. Yesterday, you tweeted the following quote from the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki. And in quotes, it says, if former President Trump woke up tomorrow and wanted to be more vocal about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, Certainly, we would support that, end quote. She says, more here by saying nothing at all. But what was it about this quote that made you tweet it out? Well, it's it's going to be a little long-winded, so bear with me. But there are certain things that Trump, I feel like, could have done in the run-up to the election that would have changed the course of his own election odds, and our history, obviously. One of them is to just, you know, focus on things like infrastructure, uh, try to rally the country in that way, maybe convince Congress to, in this case, Republicans, to make that type of investment, which I think would have earned him a lot of kudos. And certainly people would have appreciated the investments in infrastructure. But the second thing is to just sort of take a more sober-minded approach to the issue of the COVID pandemic. I mean. Over the closing eight months of his presidency, it was, you know, a little bit alarming to watch as he continued to deny the uh, severity of a pandemic that everyone was acutely feeling in their lives. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were dying. And through it all, he was talking about the light being at the end of the tunnel, this being no different than the, you know, the, the common cold. You know, the idea that, you know, the vaccine was going to come before the election. And there was just all this raw, raw boosterism around how he approached the pandemic that was never in line with the reality. And it cost him. And his people know that it cost him. And so when what we're seeing now is sort of the, the ramifications of that, which is the, the cohort right now that is most reluctant to take the vaccine are Republican voters. And the reason they're reluctant to do so is because 
this whole thing has been politicized. People, you know, people don't now view getting the vaccine as buying into Joe Biden's solution for curing the pandemic. And if Trump had just taken down the temperature a little bit around some of these things, whether it's, you know, investments in infrastructure, criminal justice reform, but more, most importantly, around COVID, I think it would have served him really well. And so I was heartened, I guess, yesterday when he did go on Fox and say, look, take the vaccine. It's proven and it's safe. That's nice. I mean, it's a, it will have a tangible real world impact to the degree that people were waiting on him to endorse it. I hope that they now follow through. I do wonder, though, if he had taken that more sober minded approach to the pandemic prior to the election, how it would have helped him politically. And I have to conclude that it would have done him some good if he was just more upfront with the public about the sacrifices that had to be made, uh, about the progress in the pandemic fight, uh, uh, including around the vaccination efforts. But he wasn't. Well, one of the biggest problems is that in this specific area, despite Donald Trump saying that his uncle is a scientist, therefore he knows more about the pandemic than anyone, a lie. The fact that he's ignorant and arrogant to it, and despite listening to people like Dr. Fauci, who told him the severity of this of this virus, one that put him himself into Walter Reed Hospital, yeah. affected Melania, the kids, the administration, his cabinet, right? He didn't care because Donald Trump lacks empathy. Donald yeah. Trump doesn't care that you get sick. He doesn't care that your family member dies. All that he cared about was his re-election, and he was predicating the re-election on the strength of the economy and his super spreader events. His goal was to show that he's a tough guy, that not only am I not going to wear a mask, I'm going to mandate that if you work for me, you can't be around me wearing a mask because you're giving in to the likes of Dr. Fauci. And Donald Trump literally came out and he's saying science isn't real. The pandemic isn't real. No, you fucking moron. It is when you have 530,000 people have died. And I say this to people all the time, especially Trump supporters. I understand why many people that I know are Trump supporters. They support him because financially they did great under Donald Trump. And they're afraid of Joe Biden and taxes and so on. And yet Joe Biden has not even come out with any statements about how they're going to deal with trying to, you know, rebuild the coffers of America, how to get sure. the country going. But, but they all have their ideas. Sure. Michael, but I, this is actually a question for you, though, because my, my proposition here, and I think I know the answer to this, but my proposition here is like, if Trump predicated everything on a good economy, and it does, that seems to be the case. Why didn't he make the logical leap, which is you can get that good economy if you have real short-term sacrifice. Uh, everyone mask up, everyone stay in place for 14 days, you know, everyone buy into the idea that we can stop the spread. And once you do that, then you can reopen. He never bought into the idea that if you just make a tiny short, not tiny, a significant short-term sacrifice, then in the long run, the benefits will be even bigger. And I feel like his inability to have that type of long-term thinking really hampered him here. But you know the guy better. Is he? Is it just that it's all short-term gratification and he couldn't think that far ahead? So my listeners who are listening right now have the same answer. 
that I am, and I know exactly what they're thinking. He's a fucking idiot. There's no other way to describe it because he doesn't think past his nose. And the fact that he had already set himself in stone that the pandemic isn't real, science isn't real. He doesn't believe in climate change. So right. why should he believe in a virus? It's not a virus. Uh, uh, it's not a virus. It's a flu. And, you know, uh, 80,000 <laughs> people die a year from it. He's he's ignorant and he's arrogant. And the problem, I mean, the guy is so arrogant. He truly believes he's entitled to the Nobel Peace Prize for what he did in terms of battling this pandemic. No, no, <laughs> yeah. you didn't battle shit, you moron. Right. Instead, you fucked up the country and you destroyed you destroyed families. I say this to a friend of mine. I was telling you who's a a supporter because it's all about the finances for him. And I said to him, do you know how many people that we know who had family members dying of the coronavirus? And we know quite a few this year at their family table. There's going to be an empty chair. And that's not the China virus. That's the Donald Trump virus. It's his fault. And their and their death is on his hands. And I keep trying to explain that to my friends, but they don't give a shit. All that they really, truly care about is what financially is going to do for them. And like Donald Trump, they're willing to sacrifice somebody's life for the almighty dollar. And what made me really angry, really, truly angry was look at what President Barack Obama Bill Clinton and George Bush did. The three of them got together like real menches, right? Like real human beings. They got together and they said, America, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or you're Republican. This virus affects both parties. Even if you're an independent, it could affect you too. So here we're getting the vaccination. They basically did a public service announcement and they did good for the, for the welfare of this country, not just for human life, but for ultimately getting us back on track. What did Donald Trump do? The day before leaving the White House, he and Melania get vaccinated in private. And yeah. that bothered me. That bothered me because it shows you he's just a fucking snake, right? He's just a, he's just a snake that doesn't care, as I've said a thousand times, about anyone or anything other than himself. Hi, folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last week's heartbreaking episode about a dad fighting for his daughter's custody. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the January 7th episode with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, the former DEA agents who took down Pablo Escobar. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. 
We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, in a March 14th piece for Politico, Gabby Orr and Meredith McGraw wrote, and I quote, Trump was supposed to be a political Godzilla in exile. Instead, his post-presidency has largely been toothless and adrift. Discuss with my listeners what is going on behind the scenes that has made Trump so ineffectual behind the scenes. Sure. Well, I had the pleasure of editing that piece. I thought it was great. Uh, they got they, they hit on something that I think people are really missing, which is, you know, Trump is not doing much right now. He, he makes the occasional statement. But by and large, he, you know, all the things that we sort of assumed he would do, he's not. So, for instance, let's walk through it. There was reports that he would start his own media company, obviously not happening, that he would join a media company, not happening, that he would start his own social media company to compete with Twitter or to get a platform, get on a platform other than Twitter. None of that is happening. There are reports that he would withhold money or try to direct donors away from the Republican committees and to his own political action committee. He made a threat, then he backed down from it. There were reports that he would go out and primary people who he thought were insufficiently supportive of him during the last month or so in office. He has not done that yet. Instead, his endorsements have gone largely to incumbents. He is not this existential threat or force that a lot of people assumed he would be in his post-presidency. Now, of course, it's early. Things can change. But from their reporting, you know, people in and around Trump say he's kind of uncertain about what he wants to do, about how he wants to utilize his resources, about what direction he wants to take, whether he wants to be a menace to Republicans or operate within the Republican Party. He's uncertain about his own political future, if he wants to run again or not. Um, part of it is just an absence of direction. Part of it, as you can attest, is that it's chaotic always around him. A lot of it is just impulsive. What he sees on TV uh, or what he hears and needs to react to or feels he needs to react to. And so there's no actual strategic vision or plan being executed. It's just him waking up, figuring out what he wants to do that day. And without the trappings of the White House, without the power of his Twitter feed, what we're seeing is someone who has not as much bite and a lot more bark. Well, yes and no. I agree with you. He okay. is certainly being diminished in terms of importance. And unfortunately, there are fools like the Matt Getzes of the world and the Josh Hawleys and the Rand Pauls, right? And the Lindsey Grahams and the Mitch McConnells that still suck up to Trump because of his, of his base. But let's not forget, he did create a pack for himself, yeah. of which, like other packs that you know he's taking the cue from, like the Clinton Foundation, the bulk of that money he's entitled to use for his, um, you know, at his own discretion. And he's raised now about three hundred million since the loss of the um, at the on election day. So that's the first. The second. Well, let me stop you for one second, though, on that pack, because the pack is interesting. It has so much money. A lot of that money was raised during the recount 
the recount. I want to put that in quotes because it really wasn't a recount. It was just him raising doubts about uh, what was an authentic and authenticated election. But a lot of his supporters chipped in under the idea, under the guise that he needed those that money for legal battles in that recount. And it was a fundraising bonanza. Since that's ended, so since he's left office, the PAC has done basically zero in terms of advertisement. They don't really have much of a web presence at all. And it's unclear if they're still raising money at that clip. So he has he's sitting on a pile of cash. And everyone's sort of waiting to figure out what he does with it. But it hasn't really operated or moved in, a, in an interesting or provocative direction since he left office. And I'm curious if that's just because he doesn't know what he wants to do with it yet. He's saving it potentially for his own run down the road or some other matter that we just don't know about. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with people like myself and others that are constantly going on television and reporting, whether it's on a podcast or whether it's in the news or uh, in yeah. print, that this whole thing is a grift. And I believe yeah. that we have been successful in demonstrating to the American people, even his supporters, those that are on the somewhat fringe, which is the preponderance of them, that this is all a grift and that right now with the pandemic – you don't want to take your stimulus money and give any of it to Donald Trump so that he could pack it away. So he's right now being sort of quarantined, so yeah. to speak, as it relates to the pack. Now, let's not forget, there was a time that Donald Trump went to parlor in order to put right. his name on their platform. But he also wanted like 50 percent of the company. <laughs> he wanted to join them. And they turned around and they said, yeah, I mean, look, Donald, you're really an important guy and all. But we're not giving away 50 percent of our company for no money to have you right on our <laughs> on our platform. I mean, that's just batshit crazy. What the fuck do you think? This is Trump steaks or Trump vodka or Trump mattresses. I mean, it's not. And we have our own platform and we have our own problems with it. And you're yeah. certainly not going to help. Now, yeah. as it relates to something like Trump News Network, don't put that aside because there's no doubt in my mind that each and every day he's working with the likes of Chris Ruddy and OANN to try to figure out how to do it. But right now, I believe that the reason that you don't see a more prolific Donald Trump out there behaving the way he did when he was president is, first of all, he doesn't have the platform to do it, meaning right. the bully pulpit of the president. But right. more importantly, what's in his head that's going on right now. And that's a cyclone or a hurricane and a tsunami all smashing from right ear to left ear inside of his head. What's going to happen with the New York City District Attorney case with right. Cy Vance with his taxes? What's going to happen with Tish James? Right. What's going to happen with now Georgia? What's going to happen with D.C.? What's happening with the litigation against him regarding the presidential inaugural committee and so on? And this plethora of cases, whether it's the Summer Zervos case, the E. Jean Carroll case, the Michael Cohen against Trump organization case. I mean, yeah. he's got his hands filled right now with litigation like he has never experienced before, because when I was with him at the Trump org for well over that decade, we never had people suing us. It was right. always us suing somebody else. He right. is now the defendant, and he is fighting tooth and nail to keep everybody, especially like Alan Weisselberg, in my case, out of any deposition because 
you know what the questions that you ask Alan Weisselberg are. Sure. It's all financial, and it's the kind that ends up destroying him. And financially, you know, there was a great article that that came out. I think it was Bloomberg um, that put it out that talked about Trump's financial situation and the fact that he's no longer worth say $3 billion that he lost in one year, or I should say in the four years since his presidency, he's lost $700 million plus of net worth. And Michael, um, what do you think, what do you think is the most, what, what case presents the biggest vulnerability for him? The district attorney's case. Um, it has already been discussed because it's criminal and not only does it involve him, it involves all three of his kids. It involves, uh, his accountant. It involves his CFO, Alan Weisselberg. It, it involves a whole plethora of people within his orbit. And these are the type of people that will turn around and say, hey, look, let's see what happened to Michael Cohen with Donald throwing him under the bus, right? right. And how it wrecked his life and his family and his finances. You know what? Um, it's easier for me to cooperate than it is for me to do what Cohen did, which was answer questions, but never as part of a cooperation, um, right. you know, a 5K1 agreement. I just never did that. And right. it was probably a mistake. Yeah. You also have to imagine that all these cases are absolutely just draining him financially, too. I mean, it's not like you can just navigate these without paying lawyers fees. He's got to be thinking about that, too. So, you know, all this stuff, I think, is is, is contributing to this idea of a guy kind of adrift, which is where he is. I mean, he's down in Mar-a-Lago. We, we don't see him we really just don't see him that often. He's not in public. It's probably the longest he's gone without public appearances in, you know, decades. And I wonder if he's just sort of trying to like get on stable footing before just deciding what to do next. And that seems to be the case. Yeah, his head, his his head right now is in a very tumultuous place as it relates to paying lawyers and legal fees. Donald Trump's never paid lawyers and legal fees. <laughs> he just doesn't believe in pay. He does not believe in paying. And so most of the people do not want to represent him. There's maybe right. a couple who are really they're not qualified to take on the extent of the litigation that Trump has to, you know, deal with, especially as it relates when you're going to fight against somebody like a Mark Pomerantz that the district attorney has brought in, who is a seasoned veteran at exactly the crimes that are being alleged against Trump. You really better have somebody on equal footing. And when you start putting guys like you know, Futterfuss, or you put uh, some of the uh, other people like, um, these are not people that are Pomerantz's equal. And right. so what will ultimately happen is Trump will end up on the short end of that stick. And financially, he's getting decimated in his businesses. He knows that yeah. in a couple of years, he's got four or 500 million coming due. Nobody will loan him money anymore, right? Deutsch has walked away. Obviously, you have the issue now with ladder capital, uh, with Alan Weisselberg's son, which is also obviously a big part of these investigations. Doesn't this make the case? This is what I've been wondering. Considering all the shitstorm that is both he's in and that is ahead, this seems like a compelling reason for him to try to re-enter politics to the degree that he can inoculate himself from these financial pressures, from these litigation pressures. It comes when you're in high elected office. I mean, honestly, it's, it's just a sad reality of, of our current political climate. But if you are the president of the United States, 
you're pretty much protected legally from this stuff. Right, but that presumes this litigation is not going to start and finish before 2024, right. which you right. know that it will. But So yeah. let me just keep moving here, and sure, I want to sure. switch gears a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In reference to the recent travails of Andrew Cuomo, now you tweeted this in quotes, ah, yes, the son of a famous governor and a three-term <laughs> governor himself who is the current NGA chair and was once HUD secretary is not part of the, in quotes again, political club. Can you unpack for my listeners what you were saying here? So, yeah, I mean, Cuomo, if people are not familiar with what's happening right now, I mean, the general breakdown of it is he's facing two truly horrific existential scandals. One is how he handled and or mishandled and fudge the data around nursing home deaths due to COVID. Okay. This was early in the pandemic. It's become apparent that he was trying to, or his team was at least trying to hide the severity of the toll that the pandemic was taking on this. The second is a slew of women who have worked for him or been in politics who allege that he sexually harass them or proposition them inappropriately. Um, Cuomo basically has adopted a quasi Trumpian defense, which is, this is, you know, these people are not telling the truth necessarily, but it's also part of a cancel culture society. And the reason that, you know, I may have given off this impression or people are coming after me is because I'm not part of the traditional political club. And it's just a joke. I mean, objectively, it's a joke. The guy has been in politics for decades. I mean, he was HUD secretary under Bill Clinton. He was attorney general of New York. He went and became governor of New York. He served three terms. He may run for a fourth term. His dad is one of the most famous Democratic politicians of a century. Um, you know, the idea that he's not been in and around politics is laughable. But it's a, it, this is sort of the classic now defense mechanism that people in these situations adopt, which is, I'm only being attacked because I'm an outsider. But that's not why he's being attacked. He's being attacked because he almost certainly engaged in behavior that was deeply offensive to a number of women. And because his administration, you know, made some incredibly shady moves in and around COVID nursing home deaths, the, the substance of the attacks are legitimate. Right. Somewhere along the line, he must be figuring out that you know, there is a bridge that's named after his father. So yeah. there has to be. So, so, and anybody and anybody that's listening that does not know about all the uh, things that are going on regarding, um, you know, Cuomo uh, obviously has been living under the Geico rock with the caveman for quite some time because it's obviously all over the place, which then brings me to sort of like my follow up on to that. With the tax deadline approaching, it's important to take steps to avoid being a victim of tax scams. Cyber criminals have used social security numbers to file fake tax returns in an attempt to steal refunds. File early and be aware of suspicious activities related to your return. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. I've been using LifeLock for years, and it's given me peace of mind from prying eyes. Here are some of the features. Device security blocks cybercriminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the information you send over Wi-Fi safe. 
LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. Now, can you also help my listeners understand, and I always find this part to be fascinating, and we saw something similar to this with Anthony Weiner, we saw it with right. Elliot Spitzer, we saw it um, with so many politicians. Can you help to unpack with me with my listeners why Cuomo finds himself so utterly alone without defenders? I just, I, right? I mean, it's, you have to say, well, how, where are his defenders? He appears yeah. to have been universally loathed inside the political establishment from Republicans and Democrats alike. Now, I particularly enjoyed your naming of the moment that they all called for his resignation as, right, and this is yours, the Albany ambush, the Friday morning massacre, and the Cuomo must go FOMO. <laughs> Can you discuss this and unpack that as well? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, so Cuomo is, you know... He's pretty loathed. Uh, he just his style of politics has been intimidation, fear. Um, he's relied on this perception that he can get shit done, um, and that he you know knows how to operate in Albany, which is a tough, tough town. And for a while, that worked. Um, you know. He, he recognized that people wanted competence and leadership. And so he did these daily briefings that made people in New York feel calm about it a little bit amid the chaos. And that was all tied to the sort of persona that he had, which was that, look, the guy is a jerk and an asshole, but he gets shit done. Well, that works when you get shit done. But when you're surrounded by chaos and when legitimate scandal over your performance begins to erupt, that doesn't work anymore. And it becomes increasingly hard to convince people to rally to your side if you spent the past, you know, however many years browbeating them. Politics is transactional, right? I mean, people, politicians are human beings. They want to feel a connection to both voters, but also fellow politicians. And the predominant feeling towards Andrew Cuomo is this guy is kind of a jerk. And so when he's drowning, he's not going to have many people throwing him a, a lifeline. Now, that's not totally true. He does have his defenders. Um, and it's possible that he just says, fuck it, I'm staying. And he survives this. That, that is something that's happened in, you know, not too recent history. Governor Virginia was the entire Democratic apparatus in Virginia called on Ralph Northam to resign after it emerged that he had been pictured in blackface. And he said, no, I'm just going to stick it out. And he did. And no one seems to say boo about it today. So it's possible that Cuomo just says, you know what? The playbook is very evident. You just stay put and ignore it and it'll go away. And he wouldn't be stupid to think that. Uh, but to your point, he doesn't have many allies or friends rallying to his side right now because he never thought it was that necessary to develop allies and friendships. He got shit done through more sticks than carrots.
uh, and that, you know, it served him well up until a certain point. Yeah, the old Al Capone method, right? Uh, better to, you know, carry a bat than a, you know, than a jar of honey. So yeah. I've also followed the recent Fox-created cultural crisis around the yeah. so-called cancel culture with a mixture of bemusement and also with a whole ton of anger. While the Democrats were trying to push through the COVID relief plan, the GOP was ranting about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Fucking Potato Head, right? Is there really that much political mileage from this stuff for these guys? I Because I, I just, I, I get angry and I don't understand it. People are starving. People don't have rent money. People don't have money to, for diapers for their children. And they want to talk about this bullshit of Mr. Fucking Potato Head. And they want to talk about, you know, this cancel culture and Dr. Goddamn Seuss? Because I'm curious, how much of a wedge issue is cancel culture to the GOP base? It's, it is interesting to see how much focus they have on these things. Um, you know, cancel culture has become so ubiquitous as a term that it has really no meaning at this point. The Dr. Seuss books, for instance, those were pulled from, uh, from circulation by the Seuss estate. You know, it wasn't like the government came in and said, you can't do this. For, there was, you know, outrage and they said, oh, we, we must back down. They made the decision to pull the books. But anyways, that's, that's an aside. Your question is, why are they doing this essentially? And, and the answer is, is that it's, it's great to rally their base. Look, I mean, the Republican Party right now is in a place where there are obvious divisions. You know, do we go in this sort of more traditional conservative direction? Do we continue the more Trumpist direction, is Donald Trump going to play a role? Should he be exiled for what happened on January 6th? There are very few things that bring the party together, but one of the things that brings the party together is this notion that society is moving towards this liberal PC place and that that is bad. Now, I think it's, you know, I think the party would probably benefit if they've focused their, you know, attention and resources on issues that you articulated, you know, economic pocketbook issues. How do we get people back to work? You know, I think they have a much more fruitful opening against Biden, for instance, on school reopenings and things like that. But if you talk to Republicans, there are a few things that galvanize their voters more than this idea that elites are coming down and dictating what you can and cannot read and what toys your kids can and cannot play with. And they use this as a cudgel, but also as a huge fundraising tool. I mean, it was not a coincidence that Ted Cruz was selling signed Dr. Seuss books for $45 a pop. I mean, these are all sort of cultural capstones that Republicans latch on to. They know that it riles up their base. They know that they can then turn around and use it to raise money from those people. And so this is kind of a, it is in part a cynical ploy to capitalize on people's fears that the sort of quaint American society that they feel like used to exist is no longer in existence. You see, but the GOP is making a humongous mistake. It's not about liberal. Really, what it's all about now is being equitable, right? The biggest problem for so many of these GOP members is that they just it, they just want the status quo. It's not that they have a problem with black people or brown people, or Muslims, or foreigners. It has nothing to do with that. They don't, they don't care. As long as you don't interfere with what I believe is mine, right? And right. they want their white, they want their white dominance 
the way that it just has been. Listen, I don't care how much money this guy is making who's black. It doesn't matter to me. Just as long as I still have what's mine, right? And right, that's right. the biggest problem because in essence, we should not even be Sam. We should not even be having this conversation. To me, I don't believe that whether you're black or white or brown or or purple from Mars, right? Um, in order to get into law school or to get into medical school. I don't care who's operating on me. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what religion or what God you pray to, as long as you're the best. Because right. if you're going into, into my chest for open heart surgery, right? I don't care to what God you pray. I know who I'm praying to when I go under the knife. Just and make sure I want that somebody. Steady. <laughs> that's cr- I make sure you don't leave a sponge in my chest, which I've unfortunately seen when I used to do medical malpractice too often. Right, clamps and and scalpels and all of this sort of shit. That <laughs> don't amputate the, the wrong cavity, leg. Just, right? just amputate that, the That's wrong for leg, sure. Right? By the way, we had one of those cases too. They took the wrong <laughs> foot. But putting <laughs> but putting that aside, to me, I don't care. Like I don't care if it's a man or a woman. I don't care if it's a transgender. I truly don't care as long as the person is the best. And that's what we should all want. We should want the best people for the specific job that they are required to do, right? I mean, and that's not what the GOP is looking for. And it's insulting to so many, to so many people, which is why you see basically the GOP shrinking in size to the Southern White Christian Coalition, and that's it. Whereas all of the new generation, for the most part, right, for the most part, the new generation wants to see change because that's change that should have come around years ago, right? right? And instead of not, it's not supposed to be about it today, right? right. It should have been 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I mean, that's really what it was. You know, as we're beginning to, you know, hit towards the hour, I really have just two questions left for you. And then I'm going to leave you alone to enjoy your day. On March 8th, you tweeted an article, I found this funny, about Josh Hawley from the New York Times that humorlessly um, quoted his former prom date. Now, I'm curious if you find him to be the real deal in terms of his ability to carry the MAGA faithful to 2024, or is he just another, you know, poser pretender to the throne of Donald Trump? That's a good question. He, he's intriguing to a degree uh, in that he he's latched on to these sort of quasi-populist positions. He's, you know, he was for these direct payment checks. He embraced a version of a minimum wage hike. He is vehemently critical of the big tech monopolies. All that is sort of, to a degree, you know, that that new Republican populist position. I think he's, in a way, savvy to take those positions. The flip side, in, in his real vulnerability, I think, is just whether he is, you know, comes across as too calculating and cynical. I mean, he embraced the, the the January 6th riots before they became riots. I mean, he encouraged the questioning of an election. And people who know him personally say this guy is smart. He's thoughtful. He, he's, not, he's not a dummy, but he's an opportunist. And if he lets that type of opportunism bring him to embrace things like challenging democracy, then, you know, what does that say about the extent of his ambitions and where he'll go? And is that a political problem for him? So I think it's too early to say what 
his future has in store. He he strikes me as the type of guy who at least thinks differently and outside the box, but obviously has some clear vulnerabilities. So, you know, he's one of those guys who, whereas a lot of people in the Republican who might, Republican field who might run in 2024 don't have charisma. I mean, I don't think he lacks that. The question is, do people look at him and say, I don't really trust him because I think it's all about, he think he's all, he's all about him. Yeah. And that's one of the big problems too. And, you know, I, in a lot of respect, I hold media accountable and responsible really for the rise and birth of Donald Trump as a politician. And I think that Josh Hawley is the same. I don't think much of Josh Hawley, to be very honest with you. I think he's an arrogant, pompous moron. It's just, it's my opinion who really, as you said, thinks more of himself than everybody else thinks of him. And I don't give a shit what school you went to. It doesn't impress me. It really, it really doesn't because some of the smartest guys I know went to the Ivy leagues and some of the stupidest people I've ever met went to Ivy leagues. Look, look at Donald Trump. And by the way, he did not go to Wharton. He went to university of Pennsylvania. Now I'm not. I'm not saying anything negative about you, Penn. My daughter went there, but she, of course, graduated magna cum laude, unlike him who did stupid, did lousy. It's a very big difference, all right? The same goes for Kushner, for Jared Kushner, who daddy brought him into Harvard. Just because you graduate from an Ivy League doesn't mean that, one, you're competent, right? It means maybe you could regurgitate something onto a page. That's fine, but it doesn't... I hold the media to be partially responsible for building up. First of all, the biggest problem that I see with the media is everybody's trying to scoop the next guy. They're trying to get the information as fast as possible. And in many respects, it's also, you know, the people who put stuff down and they want their name in the bylines and so on. And they, they just jump straight to, straight to stories that are not actually factually accurate. Right. And I think that has to ultimately change also, in order yeah. to be able to put the Josh Hawley's, the Donald Trump's into a box, because you know better than and you and I spoke many, many years ago as all this nonsense with me was unraveling. You know, I've, I've called you on many occasions said, hey, you know, Sam, the story's not really accurate. Right. You know, um, I mean, like in 2018, I reached out to you regarding Novartis, right? Mm-hmm. And I had said to yeah. you, I never illegally did anything for Novartis. And it's not a charge that was ever brought against me. I never, I never did it. And you were like, you know what? That's true. But we have a source and you named him. It was the former CEO of Novartis that gave you a statement. And I can't argue with you for your reporting on what he said. Right. But I do truly believe that media is somewhat complicit in the building up of people like a Josh Hawley. And so. If that's the case, it's really incumbent on us. We should do another hour podcast on that. I mean, there is there is a lot to unpack about the media. And, you know, I think it's absolutely fair. We have to, we need to do a bit of self-reflection on our own industry about the role we play and whether we are elevating showmanship for the sake of showmanship. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, to our credit, there have been internalized lessons from the Trump campaign in Trump years. I don't know if we've gone far enough, uh, but you know, I'm involved in these editorial discussions day in and day out. And I can tell you sincerely, like they are much more thoughtful and in depth than anything I was a part of in 2015. I mean, we, we have, we have recognized and tried to course correct, but I don't, 
you know, I don't know if the industry's incentive structures are there yet. And so we could talk for another hour on that stuff. Well, I do have to say that you were legitimately one of the few people that I spoke to that acknowledged that, you know, the issue was inaccurate uh, and that, um, you know, that there were changes that were being made. And I appreciate it, which you may remember that I had told you. I think at that time you Vaguely, were yeah. with the Daily Beast. Daily yeah, Beast, you yeah. Weren't with, I mean, it's, listen, it's a long time ago. But again, as we're finishing up our hour, I have just one last question sure. for you. But no, and honestly, I, I never really had a chance to thank you for, you know, the acknowledgement because pe- people like Rupert Murdoch and the New York Post, they actually go out and they do these fake stories for the purpose of selling papers. Mistakes are mm. mistakes. I get that, especially sure. when you have the CEO of a mega billion dollar company. I can't hold you responsible, you know, for what he reported, which was inaccurate, but I did certainly appreciate it. And I'll take this chance to thank you for hearing me out on that and for your response. So my final question to you is that the GOP dependence on using the cancel culture to rally their base seems to track with your March 2nd political piece that called the GOP the party of half Trump, that they have abandoned the economic populism and are clinging to the performative outrage over cultural issues. Can you discuss this with me as we end the conversation? Yeah, I mean, it gets back to the Holly story, right? You know, Holly, you know, putting aside whether it's cynicism and whatnot, he he is trying to promote a type of Republican populism that I think Trump did, you know, also kind of promoted, but not really. We'll put aside Trump for now. Um, but the question is, like, for the Republicans, is do you want to be the party of Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head's gender? Or do you want to be the party that rails against tech monopolies? And I think what we're seeing now is that more of them want to be the party of cancel, you know, railing against cancel culture and Dr. Seuss than they do about, you know, whether we should break up, you know, e-commerce giants and try to get people better paying jobs. And it's just, I don't know if that's the right, I feel like that, you know, when you talk to Republicans who you know, know the stuff a lot better than I do. And they're worried about it. I mean, the cancel culture stuff is really talking to a, you know, a community that is not going to expand that much. It's talking to yourself. It's, it's not expanding the ranks of the party beyond where they currently are. It might be good to rev up energy and fundraise, but it doesn't really get you electorally much further. And so it's, it's sort of the existential question Republicans have going for them right now, which is what direction do we want to take, but also what do we want to prioritize? And there's very few people who can seamlessly shift back and forth through the those two those two fields. So you know, I think where the party ends up coming down in this question is going to say a lot about how they stand in 2024. Yeah, I mean, and and it doesn't help when you have a another fucking idiot in the GOP, this Ron Johnson, who stands <laughs> up there. I mean, it. He, there's, there's just no, there's no words that I could say that would express the anger and the disgust when I see a, an elected official make a stupid comment like that. I mean, it's, right. it, it goes beyond stupid. And then he goes, it's not, it's not racist. Of course it is. Then what, what they need to almost do is to define what a racist is or what racism is and maybe pass it out to. What's ridiculous about Ron Johnson's comment was when he said it. 
<laughs> he, he prefaced it by saying, now this could get me in trouble. He knew what he was saying was bad. But then, of course, when Good it blew point. up, he said, I, I didn't know it was going to be bad. Of course, he knew it was going to be bad. He said, it could get you in trouble. So. Yeah. Well, look, Sam, it's so good to see you. It's good to speak to you. Thank good you for your insight. Up. And, you, you know, you, you know where to find me. I certainly know where to find you. And I hope to have you on the show again. Michael, it was a pleasure. And congrats on the success of the podcast, man. Uh, thank you very much. Be well, Sam. All right. Take care, bud. And now for today's mea culpa. As I close out this episode, I can't help but wonder what it must be like for Alan Weisselberg and his family. Sure, I wouldn't pour water on the guy if he was on fire in front of me, but I can't help but feel sorry for those whose lives continue to be so intertwined with Donald Trump's. To read the interview with Barry Weisselberg's ex-wife is to hear a familiar tale of a man, and ultimately a family, brought to ruin over his fealty to Donald Trump. She spoke of how Alan sought his meaning and purpose from Trump, and that only in his approval did Alan find satisfaction. She also spoke of how they suck you in and make you dependent upon them for money and housing and any number of intangible things that you begin to feel you can only get from them. It's sad and it's sick and it sounds completely foreign to me right now. How could anyone allow themselves and their families to become so intertwined and dependent on such evil? And the answer remains the same. It happens a little bit at a time until you are so far in their pocket and there is no way out except for prison. Alan Weisselberg is going to find out the hard way what being loyal to Donald Trump is worth, and that's absolutely nothing. I only hope during his prison sentence he is able to reconnect with his soul and repair the damage he has done to himself and his family. Until then, I'm content to watch the circus. After all, what goes around comes around. And Alan, you brought all this shit on yourself. So good luck, buddy. You're going to need it. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch. And it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Oh, baby, don't lie for me. If I tell you my story, don't cry for me. I did my time, that's fine by me. This is my mea culpa. If you dance with the devil, it's gonna go down. Tell the truth, it's now. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. 
Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. What's the room again? Uh, 1240. Down at the end. Ooh, what's that? Sammy, don't touch that. That's someone's old food. Here we are. Do you have the key? You have both of ours. Oh, right. Not working. Rub it. Come on. Try flipping it over. Seriously. Why can't we go inside? Just honey, let me try. I'm tired. Give me yours. You have mine. All right. Please, if you could just... Why aren't you opening the door? Can everyone just shut the... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.